Welcome to a special presentation from KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, you'll hear speeches from the 43rd Annual Community Celebration of Martin Luther King Jr., hosted by Seattle Colleges. The theme for this year's gathering was a question, Are We There Yet?, inspired by this line from MLK's final speech, I've been to the mountaintop. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. Mr. Marcus Green gave the keynote speech. Green is the founder and executive director of the South Seattle Emerald, a nonprofit commentary and news source. Congressman Adam Smith, Governor Jay Inslee, King County Executive Dow Constantine, and Seattle Mayor Ed Murray also addressed the audience. Fifth grade students from the John Stanford International School read poems they wrote for the occasion in English, Spanish, and Japanese. And Danelle Damon and the Greater Works Chorale closed the program with We Shall Overcome. This event took place on Friday, January 15th at Seattle's Mount Zion Baptist Church. Here, Reverend Aaron Williams welcomes the attendees, followed by MC Monique Ming Lavin. I want to take this opportunity to welcome you to Mount Zion Baptist Church, a place where we are committed to ministering to the marginalized, the locked up, the left out, and the least of these in our society. We're excited to have you here today and to host the 43rd annual community celebration of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Mount Zion has a long relationship with Seattle Colleges, and we want to continue to partner with you as we strive to make the great city of Seattle the beloved community that Dr. King envisioned. As we celebrate the birthday of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., may his spirit and his words continue to remind us that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. As long as we are human, we all play a role in doing the work of justice. And let me say this, and if by chance you don't have a church home, As of today, please consider yourself to be an honorary member. This is Marcus Harrison Green, co-founder of the South Seattle Emerald, a reporting fellow with Yes Magazine, a board member of the Western Washington chapter of the Society of Professional Journalists, and the 2015 recipient of Crosscut's Courage Award for culture. Now, growing up in South Seattle, he experienced firsthand the neglect of news coverage in the area by local media, which taught him the value of narratives. After an unfulfilling stint working for a Los Angeles-based hedge fund in his 20s, Marcus returned to his community, determined to tell its true story, which led him to start the South Seattle Emerald. The publication has become a go-to source of community information in a part of the city that rarely receives much press outside of the police blotter. I'm in the mainstream media. I can say you are right, and I'm thankful for your service. As he says, the media spends so much time talking about the death here that it rarely ever talks about the abundance of life also found here. He calls South Seattle the New Harlem sees journalism as democracy's most important tool. He says it functions not only to speak truth to power, since the powerful most often already know the truth, which is usually why they try to hide it. Journalism's true job, he says, is to speak truth to the many who believe they are powerless. It reminds them that they are not. He's proud to live in the south end of Seattle. Please join me in welcoming Marcus Green. to have Monique do my intro all the time. <laughs> no, when, uh, when Maria, who organized this event here, asked me to first speak here today, um, and then she told me 
that my charge was to answer the question of whether or not we as a society had made it to Martin Luther, King, Martin Luther King's mountaintop. I have to admit, the, the first thought that crossed my mind was this lady has got to be crazy if she thinks this speech is going to last more than two seconds. <laughs> but in thinking deeply about this question, it took me back to a day seven years ago, to the last day I ever spent with my grandfather. It was January 20th, 2009. I remember it vividly. To me, that day was the height of being black in this country. That was the day that I thought we had actually reached that mountaintop. It was the day an African-American man finally strolled with his family down Washington, D.C.'s Pennsylvania Avenue to get sworn in as, into the highest office in this nation. Cloud nine wasn't high enough for me that day. I was on cloud infinity to the 18th power. And what made it sweeter what made it more memorable was that I shared it with my grandfather. He had been debilitated by a heart condition for months, but on that day he got up the strength to watch the inauguration. My grandfather, Jimmy Green, was not an emotional man, unlike his grandson. And growing up, I never once believed he was capable of even shedding a tear. But that day he couldn't help but be overcome with joy. The type of joy that only comes when you have finally seen something that for so long you were told that you were, could not at all view. And so I asked him, I asked this man who had grown up as a sharecropper in segregated Arkansas, who because of the laws of that time was forbidden from obtaining anything other than an eighth grade education, who had been called boy for so long it took him until his late 20s to realize he was a man. This man who wasn't allowed to fight for this country in a segregated military, but could only cook for the people who did, and who couldn't cast a vote for president until he was 35. I asked my grandfather if he ever thought a man who looked like the one he cast his vote for that November could ever become president. No, he answered. No, I never dreamed a man like me could possibly be president one day. But Marcus, he cautioned, be careful. Because as good of a day as this is, it is only one day. And we need many more. And that's the last thing he ever told me. Because later that night, he fell into a coma and he, and he passed away. But those words always stuck with me, even as hard as they were to process at first. Because you see, like most Americans, it was difficult not to be seduced by the notion that our society had finally vanquished its race problem, that we had now ushered in a golden era of colorblindness, that era that means that when you mention race more than a minimal amount in mixed company, you are charged with the crime of waging social justice jihad. It's hard, almost impossible, for us not to be seduced by the pervasive assumption that we are more than 90% of the way there to racial utopia. Somehow we are supposed to believe that this nation's history, one that includes genocide, slavery, suppression, and exclusion, cannot possibly impact our society, either now or in the future. That blatant acts of racism are now few and far between, relegated to the margins of simple-minded militia members in Western Oregon, are the idiotic presidential candidates they lovingly flock to. We can point to the room that has been made for people of color and women at the top of our society's totem poles, their high visibility in positions of power. We can point out that explicit forms of racism have been on the wane since the days MLK spoke of his mountaintop. No more are there police dogs that ravage the bodies of marchers. No more are there belly clubs that fracture the brains of protesters our water hoses to impede their progress. No more signs to designate where we can or cannot be seated. You know, I hear that racism is dead from some of my own black brothers when discussing the case of Sandra Bland, the woman mysteriously found dead in her prison cell after a routine traffic stop, or the case of John Foster, killed within seconds of Ohio policemen arriving at a Walmart for holding a BB gun. 
Many of them, long conditioned to what they call proper interaction with law enforcement, tell me that Bland and Foster should have known to mind their P's and Q's and that ultimately that duo was responsible for their own deaths. I hear tales of racism's demise so often from my white liberal brothers and sisters who spout that the true culprit is a crisis of culture, a lack of personal responsibility, and a chronic condition of moral malaise. I hear it of, of its end in the midst of a society whose black infants are three times more likely than white babies to die within the first months of birth, despite no biological deficiency. I hear racism is a relic in society that mocks the provision of safe spaces for its marginalized students while actively creating an entire world of safety for those it values. I read racism's obituary even after a recent reporting trip. When a white mother told me that she could never know what it is like to suffer in the way that a black mother does in this country, because if her 12-year-old son was to be killed, his murder would be a crime. No, racism is not dead. It is like that Greek hydra, the beast that regenerates in a new form just as you've begun to celebrate its defeat. No, it is not as exclusively as overt as it once was. It is more sophisticated. It is more systemic. For every Tamir Rice dead in the park, our current form of racism creates a million Tyrones half his age who are predestined to a life of poverty by an inferior school system. For every Betty Jones needlessly killed by Chicago police responding to a dispute she had nothing to do with, it creates a million Yvettes who will die in early death because they are economically bound to an area with no health care. For every Trayvon Martin, there will be a million Andres swallowed whole by a criminal justice system that will never offer a chance of true redemption, that will forever brand them with the scarlet F for felon, and their life the life that is absent of opportunity will be nothing more than a slow, prolonged death. As racism was once housed prominently in the hearts of unrepentant bigots, it stubbornly finds shelter in the institutions of our society and that society's systems. The gears of these systems continue to be greased with black bodies and function regardless of the good intentions of the man and women, women pulling the lever. It does not matter, it does not matter whether those hands of, of the people in power holding that lever are black, as they are in the city of Baltimore, or if those hands are white, as they are in Ferguson, Missouri. Nor does it matter if they are brown, or beige, or metallic marble. The outcome is always the same, a mass devastation of life. So are we there yet? To ask that question in this society is to answer that question. The racism we encounter today can't be solved by old efforts, nor civil rights era understandings of what we face. In truth, we can't even entertain the question of are we there yet before answering a more important question. Where are we? That question is a lot tougher because we occupy different planes of existence in this country. And so we must be honest about our social location in this society. What guides us to these locations is a word that is so misused. It's been so cheapened to the point that it's, you can find it at a dime store. That word is love. But when I say that word, I say it as one that equates to the resiliency needed by those who fight for racial justice to the point that their spirits' knuckles are raw and bleeding because they must continue to fight. I say that word that is synonymous with the acceptance necessary by those to whom this life bestows advantages, whether it is because of pigment or class or gender, who must see past frugality and privilege and realize that to consider your life in context is not a demonstration of weakness, it is an exhibition of character. When all groups have been dis 
discriminated against in this country sit down to eat at America's dinner table. It is love that asks them to understand that when they see a race that has been malnourished for so long, pleading to feed on America's promises, that race is not insisting that others sitting around the dinner table should starve. They are just asking to eat like everyone else. I say love in a way that translates to faith. Faith required by all of us. Faith in that which so often goes unseen in our human brethren. Their capacity to grow. Their capacity to change. That word and the deeds it inspires is the only way I know to change this world. This world that we live in by choice. And yes, our collective circumstance is a choice. And I know that point causes cynics to grind their teeth. They think this world we live in is the best of all possible, that this is as good as it gets. But this world in its present state is constructed by no laws of nature. It is built on a foundation of ideas, beliefs, and doctrines of people, and kept in place by fear, apathy, and resignation. And it can only be undone by the new ideas, imagination, and beliefs of other people. Now, we can live in a society that puts a higher value on some lives, or we can choose to live in a society where all lives truly matter, including black lives. We can live in a world as we are born into, or we can live in a world as it can be, but we cannot live in both. And this world as it can be isn't one that is left to fantasy or one that exists only in dreams. It is one being birthed right here, right now. It is being birthed in the city of Seattle by Devin Rogers, a central student watching on the live stream today, a young woman who couldn't tolerate that in this liberal bastion she calls home, more than half of all incarcerated juveniles were children of color. So she helped to get that same city to pass a resolution to move towards the goal of 0% youth incarceration and an alternative to imprisonment. It is birthed right here in this county, named after Martin Luther King Jr. by Bridget Hempstead, who couldn't sit back any longer and abide the continuous health disparities found in unincorporated King County Skyway. Because of her effort, its mostly poor black and white population will soon have access to health services long neglected there. It is birthed here in the state of Washington by Dominic Davis, who was sick and tired of burying black, brown, red, and poor white youth and is working to install violence prevention and racial training in every school district in this state. Respectively, they are a student, a semi-retired mother of three, and a part-time football coach. These people hold no elected office, and they more than likely will never have a national holiday in their honor. They are people who possess nothing more than empathy, courage, and resolve. They are people who embody Dr. King's legacy, a man who in all his reverence, in all his glory, though a king was still just a man, a man who was as flawed and as human as we are as men and women and people today. And I say that not to injure his legacy, but to truly do it justice. Because that legacy tells me that sainthood is not a requirement for progress. It doesn't matter one iota if you are fractured, broken, or bruised because your participation in this world is mandatory to transform it. His legacy tells me it doesn't matter whether your position is the President of the United States or a Starbucks barista between dream jobs. Wherever your occupation, when you fight against hatred, you propel justice. His legacy tells me that no matter how dark our days, there will be light. There will be hope. There is hope today because we all woke up this morning. You woke up this morning with courage, conviction, and empathy at your disposal. 
the raw ingredients to heal this sick world if you just choose to activate them. That legacy tells me that there is no measure too small to our ascent up to Dr. King's mountaintop. So in a climb that no one person, no one generation will complete alone, his legacy tells me it doesn't matter whether the actions you take to combat the racial madness in this world are measured in centimeters, inches, or feet, because our society has no insignificant steps upward. Dr. King knew this when he told us in his last speech he wouldn't get there with us. My grandfather knew this when he told me we still had far to go. I'll know this on some day long from now when my, grand, my, when my granddaughter asked me, Grandfather, are we there yet? And I'll tell her the exact same thing I tell you today. I'll say to her, we've climbed far, but we have farther still to climb. Now you go, you reach up, and you pull us higher. You go, you rise up, and you pull us higher. And of course, many of our messages have, they resound here in this Washington. We also want to reach the other Washington. (laughs) So let's start that right now. I would like to introduce a member of the United States Congress. Congressman Adam Smith would like to say a few words. Thank you very much. It is uh, great to be here. I want to thank Reverend Williams for once again hosting us and thank Reverend McKinney uh, for all of his tremendous leadership over these many decades. He has made a real difference in our community and we all wish him well. Uh, and it is always a pleasure to be here uh, at Mount Zion to help celebrate uh, the life and achievements of Martin Luther King and to remember all that he has done for our society. And I think the question uh, that you asked for the theme for this year is so perfectly appropriate. Are, are we there yet? And it's a very interesting question because, first of all, where is there? Uh, And second of all, is it yes or no? Uh, And I think, without question, we we are not there yet. Um, And there is the equality that we all aspire to um, across racial and economic lives so that, well, not to uh, cheat and quote um, the person we're honoring, but, you know, we are judged by the conduct content of our character, uh, not by the color of our skin. Uh, We all want to get to that place, and we've all seen this year uh, in too many instances where we have fallen short. And I'll say a brief word about that in a moment. But I also want to remember how far we've come. Because, you know, it is so easy to get discouraged uh, in America about all that is wrong with it and all of the challenges. But we have made real progress, and the the people in this room have worked hard to achieve that progress, and many, many others have as well. And I want to get us to that point. Um, And I don't mean this in any sort of political way, but I actually, I don't often enjoy the State of the Union speech, um, no matter who's president. Uh, But there was a positive aspect to that State of the Union speech that President Obama gave that I thought we desperately needed, to remember what's right about what we've achieved, how far we've come. You know, I think of our, our, our own area here. We, we elected an African-American mayor in Norm Rice. Uh, we elected an African-American King County executive in Ron Sims um, in what was, you know, not a predominantly African-American constituency. And the great thing about that is no one thought about, oh, you know, Ron Sims or Norm Rice, they're the African-American candidate. No, they were the most qualified he or was the most qualified person running for office, so we elected him to do the job. Um, we judged them on their character. And we made that progress. And we can see the increase uh, in diversity. Uh, ironically, my, uh, soft, my daughter, who's a sophomore in high school, had to give a debate yesterday on whether or not there was sufficient diversity on television. Um, you know, and even 10, 15 years ago, there would have been no debate. No, there wasn't, um, leaving aside the Oscar nominations for the moment. Uh, on television, <laughs> we have seen a massive increase in diversity, a massive increase in characters of color. Um, uh, from the LGBT community, women getting prominent roles. We have come a long, long way. And as we think about how much farther we have to go, I don't want us to forget that. Um, because if there is one thing that you know, I, I do share with the president this uh, about the problems in Washington, D.C. and all the challenges we face, it is all the negativity. Um, it has become a very, very depressing place where everybody is upset about something um, and very, very concerned about it. And we've done so much good. I want to remember that and give our children a positive view of the country to say, hey, you work hard, you can make a difference, you can move forward, and you can. All that said, we obviously have a lot more work to do. 
we have not achieved equality. And particularly within the, the African-American community, we still have a lot of work to do. And that is what we have seen. And that is why I think the Black Lives Matter movement is so important. Um, and the reason we're emphasizing that is because in too many places in this country, black lives don't seem to matter. And I could go on and on and on about this, but I'll put it very simply. If Trayvon Martin was white, he wouldn't be dead. And the final thing I will say, and I mean this in a positive way, uh, the answer to the question, are we there yet, also I think has to contain the reality that we will never be there. We will never be at that perfect place where we, we have perfect equality. Um, and that's not as depressing as it sounds. We will make progress as we have, and we will continue to make progress. But I think the reason to think about it that way is to realize that you can never just rest and say, it's all good, we don't have to worry about it anymore. We all have to work for greater equality um, for all in our community, um, certainly for diverse populations, but also for basic economic equality. You know, we've seen an incredible concentration of wealth in this country um, and a shrinking of the middle class that deprives all people, uh, regardless of their race, creed, or color, uh, of opportunity. And we have to work on that as well. So we will have to all continually work for greater equality and justice, but we can also remember the progress that has been made. And I think that uh, is the most important thing. You know, if Martin Luther King could see where society is today, I think he'd still say, well, we could do this, we could do that. But I think he would also say, wow, we have an African-American president. You know, who, who would have thought that could have happened? Um, you know, we have African-Americans succeeding at every level of society. We have all manner of different other minorities succeeding at every level of society. So, no, we're not there yet, but we have come a very, very long way. Uh, and the people in this room who have worked so hard for that should be proud of that accomplishment. I pledge to continue to work with you to, to make sure that we, we get closer uh, to where we need to be as a society. Thank you. Thank you, Representative, for being here. As we remember, we're not just celebrating, we are reminding ourselves not to be complacent. Now, we are also honored to have Governor Jay Inslee with us this afternoon, who would like to address us now. Uh, thank you, Monique, and thank you, Reverend Williams, for this invitation. Um, it's an honor to get to meet Joy Connolly, who, in your leadership, is an inspiration, Ms. Connolly. It's an honor to shake your hand. Uh, this is something that I have felt in my life uh, to be in any way connected to Dr. King. You know, the only high school Dr. King, I believe, visited um, was Garfield High School. Um, my dad was a teacher and coach at Garfield High School. And there's only a couple times I ever saw my dad cry, and it was the night when we lost Dr. King. And I've always felt that wound and that missing presence, which is as close as angelic as we will ever get to understand. But I just want to make some comments that, although we don't have him, I just want to co comment that I believe his spirit is so strong with us that we are still with his spirit. And I just want to make a few comments about that. I think it's a joy to see his spirit alive at these children who are from John Stanford, another incredible leader that their spirit, his spirit, is alive in these children. And I see that at all the schools. We have so many schools named after Dr. King in America. To see that spirit alive to me is very, very inspiring. I, I see it when we are now trying to make sure that every single child, every single child gets a quality education in this state and that we have that spirit alive right now to improve this ability to end this pernicious opportunity gap that has plagued us for so long. And I have to tell you, I am happy that the spirit has been alive that for finally every single child is going to get full-day kindergarten. Those who need early child education are going to get it. Those who need smaller class sizes are going to get it. And our African-American and non-African-American students finally, for the first time, in the only place in the United States get a cut in the tuition this year. I'm happy that spirit is alive. And we're getting things done in that regard. I'm happy that, uh, that the uh, economic message, and we know how much the Reverend King uh, talked about the economic message, that the spirit with uh, Reverend McKinney, who was so instrumental in 
establishing banks and credit unions, is alive in trying to increase economic opportunities for the African-American community. And we've been working on this because right now we have way, way too low the number of contractors in the African-American community who have access to contracts with municipal and state governments. And that's why I'm happy that the, the Reverend Martin Luther King's spirit is alive when we started a sub-cabinet position in our administration to make sure that we get more contracts for contractors in the African-American community. I think that this is long overdue. And I'll mention another place that his spirit is alive. We know that too many people aren't being able to have a living wage to keep a roof over their head and food on the table because of this rising income inequality. And I got to tell you, I'm I'm going to be pleased to see his spirit alive when those people are going to be out knocking on doors getting signatures on this initiative to raise the minimum wage so that everyone can get a living wage this year. We're going to see that spirit alive, and I'm happy about that. So I'm just going to close by my favorite quote of all of the wonderful words and the, the Reverend le, uh, left us. He said in his letters from the Birmingham jail, we are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. And I am glad that uh, we have a state that recognizes that we are in that single garment of destiny. And I'm glad that we are here today to make sure that that spirit is alive, and it is. Thank you very much. Thank you, Governor, for those words. And now King County Executive Dow Constantine has a few words. Good afternoon. Yesterday, the employees of Martin Luther King County gathered for our annual celebration of our namesake. And each year, our employees choose a theme, usually a, a, a quote from Dr. King, to organize our thoughts and our celebration. And this year, our employees got very ambitious and chose a rather lengthy quote that I want to share with you. This is what Dr. King shared when he was accepting the 1964 Nobel Prize for Peace. He expressed his belief, once again, that we are all intrinsically good and that we can become better people. He said, I refuse to accept the view that mankind is so tragically bound to the starless midnight of racism and war that the bright daybreak of peace and brotherhood can never become a reality. I believe that un unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word. President Obama reminded us of this thought in his speech just this week. He reminded us that in this tumultuous time, unarmed truth and unconditional love are required of us. We watch with alarm as racism and exclusion and increasingly shrill hate speech take center stage in our presidential campaign. Hate speech in the public arena is not merely an expression of profound ignorance or of unfounded fear. No, it is a tool. It is a tool deployed with cold calculation to divide us one against the other by race or gender or orientation or religion for political or financial gain. This is not new. From the response to Bacon's rebellion in the 17th and 18th centuries to Jim Crow in the late 19th and 20th century to Donald Trump this week, we are not there yet. Check the news, check your Facebook feed. We see heated, even threatening rhetoric directed at communities of color, seeking to divide us today in the 21st century for political and financial gain. 
But violent speech unchallenged begets actual violence. Young men of color are shot at an alarming rate. Young men of color are more likely to be stopped and questioned without legitimate cause. People lose a sense of control, of agency over themselves and their bodies and their destiny. Parents lose a sense of safety for their children in what is manifesting itself as a hostile world. This is a form of terrorism. It is intended to instill fear not only in the direct victim, but in all those who identify with the victim. It is intended to threaten our sense of community, our sense of personal safety. And this heightened stress and anxiety and trauma we bring with us into our homes and into our workplaces. It impairs health. It even shortens lifespans. This is abhorrent, and we must actively reject it. In this county, your county, that takes its name from Dr. King, we've joined together to make equity and social justice a central commitment of our work. We live our values through our juvenile justice equity steering committee. We live our values through our equity and social justice strategic plan, and we prepare our children for a brighter future through birth through five focused best starts for kids, which you approved at the election this year, to make sure that every child gets a good start. And then we rely on our schools and our legislature to provide that education they need all the way through college and additional training so that they can compete, and they can stand on their own two feet, and they can fulfill their potential in this one life we have here on this earth. So are we there yet? No. But we are building the will and we are building the means in this region to create a different future. To do so, paraphrasing Dr. King, we must evolve for all human conflict a method which rejects revenge, aggression, and retaliation. The foundation of such a method is love. Thank you. Great reminder that values are actions, not just words. Thank you, Executive Constantine. And now here to represent the city of Seattle, Mayor Ed Murray. Good afternoon. It is once again an honor to be here as your mayor to speak to you for the third year in a row. I wanted to share with you some thoughts that I shared yesterday with the employees of the city of Seattle as we came together to celebrate Dr. King's life among the employees who work every day to make this city a more equitable place. Over the last two years, I've spoken about racial inequality and about what we as a city are doing together to address our nation's greatest challenge. The celebration of Dr. King's life and legacy provides us an opportunity to take stock about the progress we have made and the progress we have failed to make. And I know as I stand here today, and I know as we are joined here in this room, that we as a city are frustrated. We're frustrated because we have not made enough progress. Not when, in the last decade, every demographic group in Seattle has seen their income raise, except for African Americans who have seen their income drop. Not when 40% of African American youth do not graduate from our Seattle public schools on time or at all. Not when African Americans in this city are five times more likely than Caucasians to be victims of violent crimes, or 55% are more likely to earn the minimum wage than the rest of the city, or when one-third of the people who are homeless on our streets are African-American, far larger than their proportion to our population. And I know everyone in this room knows these statistics, 
They are the statistics that are feeling the cause Black Lives Matter. And let me be clear, in the city of Seattle, Black Lives Matter. These difficult truths can make us hopeless. But despite the reality that racism and inequality still exist in our society, we must not forget all the work and all the sacrifice of civil rights leaders over the last 50 years. On Martin Luther King Day, as we gathered to honor Dr. King's legacy and continue to work on his dream, we must also remember that an entire generation of civil rights leaders, activists, and protesters did make a difference. They did accomplish much. To say that nothing has been done over the last 50 years fails to do justice to the legacy and sacrifice of those who came before us. And acknowledging that we have made some progress doesn't mean that we are naive about the challenges that we face ahead of us. Dr. King's life mattered, and Dr. King's legacy mattered. It made a difference. And Dr. King knew that our progress would be slow. In a 1967 speech, just a few years after the Civil Rights Bill passed, he said, and I quote, it is much easier to integrate a lunch counter than it is to guarantee a livable income and a good, solid job. It is much easier to guarantee the right to vote than it is to guarantee the right to live in decent sanitary, sanitary housing conditions. It is much easier to integrate a public park than it is to make genuine quality education a reality. Everything that we've attempted to accomplish together as a city over the last two years is in response to the racial injustice and inequality that Dr. King highlighted in that very quote. And we do this one step at a time. We do it by providing one youth a job in our youth employment initiative. One of those interns, by the way, was at the White House for the State of the Union speech one of our interns. We have gone, when I took office, from 600 summer youth jobs to 1,000 during my first year to 2,000 last year, and folks, we're on our way this year to 4,000 summer youth jobs. <laughs> one youth at a time. And we do it by enrolling one child at a time in our preschool program. In our first year, 24% of the children enrolled are African American, one three-year-old and one four-year-old at a time. We do it by building one more unit of affordable housing so a family who works in this city can, live, can afford to live in the city they work in. We've launched the most ambitious affordable housing program in the nation, one home at a time. We do this, we do this by hiring an African-American woman from the Rainier Valley to work in a construction project downtown, one job at a time. We've implemented a priority hiring program that requires that workers from economically distressed neighborhoods get hired for our public work projects, one neighborhood at a time. And we do it by contracting with African-American-owned engineering firms. We've tripled the number in just two years, one business at a time. And I could go on. But I mentioned that folks are frustrated, and it is easy to lose hope. It is easy to point fingers. It is easy to resort to name-calling and shouting at one another. But we can't turn on one another. President Obama said in his State of the Union address Tuesday night, that our brand of democracy is hard. He said, and I quote, it doesn't work if we think that people who disagree with us are motivated by malice or that our political opponents are unpatriotic. Democracy grinds to a halt without a willingness to compromise or when even the basic facts are contested and we listen to those who agree with us only. The president invited 
Seattle Police Chief O'Toole to sit with the First Lady during the State of the Union address. And he did that for a reason. He acknowledged that Seattle is making progress on police reform. Two Attorney Generals, Eric Holder and Loretta Lynch, both have met with me to acknowledge that Seattle is making progress on police reform. And I realize, maybe I should point out, the only two African-American attorney generals in the country's history. I realize that we are a long way from restoring trust fully between our police and our community. But I believe that, in Se- but I believe that Seattle can lead the way to heal the wounds in this nation when it comes to the police and the African-American community. And I'd like to ask our Seattle police officers just to stand for a moment. I didn't tell you this was going to happen, but if you could all just stand for a minute. And it's one of the cool things about being the chief, stay standing. One of the cool things about being the, the chief law enforcement officer, they actually listened. I'd actually asked folks who live in this city who are African-American to stand for a moment. I believe that you and all of you can have a conversation with each other and heal those wounds and lead this nation. And I know that you will do that. So I want to thank all of you in this audience and our officers for your willingness to engage in that conversation Look at each other because you are the solution that this nation is hoping for. Thank you. And that's why President Obama said on Tuesday night that he is optimistic about the future and I am optimistic too. I want you to continue to challenge me and I want you to continue to challenge the city council because I want them to share the, the pain. No, but on a serious note, challenge us, because that's how change happens. You know, and the president can sing, and I can't, so I'm not going to sing for you. <laughs> but you know, the line from the song we will sing at the end, We Shall Overcome, is more than a line, and it is more than a dream. It is actually something that's happening. Martin Luther King was overcoming racism in his life. We are on a journey to overcome racism in our lives. And I believe this city, because we are optimistic, can overcome racism. Thank you very much. Next up in this program, fifth grade students from the John Stanford International School read poems they wrote for this occasion in English, Spanish, and Japanese. My name is Ren Wagner, and I am in fifth grade, and I go to John Stanford International School. This is my friend, Anders. He is in the same grade as me, and we both go to John Stanford International School. We are going to read a poem that I wrote called Not There Yet. Martin Luther King, Jr. had a dream, a dream that all men are created equal, and blacks and whites would one day be friends. But are we there yet? Are we there yet when we watch TV and hear terror and see violence? When ISIS is creating havoc all around the world? Are we there yet? When families aren't allowed to board planes because of their race? Are we there yet? When a killer is killed in the park by a police officer because he had a toy gun? Now ask yourself the same question. Are we there yet? My answer is no. Okay. I'm going to say the same poem, but in Spanish. No hemos llegado por Ren. Martin Luther King tuvo un sueño, un sueño que todas las personas son creadas iguales. Y negros y blancos algún día serían amigos. Pero hemos llegado, hemos llegado cuando en la televisión escuchamos terror y vemos violencia, cuando ISIS está creando caos alrededor del mundo. Hemos llegado cuando familias no están permitidas a borrar aviones debido a su raza. Hemos llegado cuando un niño es asesinado en un parque por un oficial de policía porque él tiene un arma de juguete. 
Aurora hace la misma pregunta. Hemos llegado. Mi respuesta es no. Hi, my name is Castella, and I am a fifth grader at John Stanford International School. I will be reading a poem that I wrote in both Japanese and English. First, I'm going to read it in Japanese. Watashi wa soko ni ikaremasu ka? Watashi wa soko ni ikaremasu ka? Minna ga onaji ni naru sekai ni. Watashi tachi wa soko ni ikaremasu ka? Kuroi hito to shiroi hito ga onaji ni naru sekai ni. Watashi tachi wa soko ni ikaremasu ka? Minna ga shiawase ni. Nareru sekai ni kotae wa ima no tokoro iie desu. Dore kurai kakaru no deshou, junen desu ka, hyakunen desu ka. Demo, watashi tachi wa motto ganbareba, motto hayaku sekai o kaeru koto ga dekimasu. Dou omoimasu ka, anata wa soko ni ikaremasu ka. それとも私たちみんながそこに行かれますか Now I will read the same poem just in English. Will we be there? Will we be there where everyone is treated equally? Will we be there to a time when white and black are treated equally? Will we be there? To a place where we can all be happy. The answer at this point is no. How long do you think it will take? Ten years? A hundred? But the more we try, the less years it will take to change the world. So, what do you think? Will you be there or will we be there? Hi, I'm Hunter, and I wrote a poem called, Are You There Yet? Are you there yet? No, we are not there yet, but we have improved. Dr. King will always be with us no matter what you think. I know he is gone, but we will go on until we are through. We will never forget his words, the life and death. We will pass them on through the next generation until we have fulfilled his dream. Great job there from Ren Anders Castella and Hunter, all fifth graders from John Stanford International School. Great to hear them and their interpretations. Yeah, that's right. Their interpretations of are we there yet, we are not. But you guys and your friends will get us there. The children, Persian Japanese. Kodomo tachi. Karera wa yatte kimashita. Karera wa maachi o shimashita. 彼らは歌いました。彼らは、まあ、彼らはちゃんと歌いました。自由のために。彼らは、銅屋に入れられました。彼らは、水をかけられました。彼らは、まれました。彼らは、傷つけられました。でも、彼らは、自由をもらいました。Now in English, the children. They came, they marched, they sang, they chanted for freedom. They got jailed, they got hosed, they got bitten, they got harassed, yet they got freedom. Uh, my name is Zoe, and I wrote a piece uh, called Martin Luther King. So. And it's not in Japanese or Spanish. <laughs> I've known about Martin Luther King Jr. for a long time because, lucky for me, I had a teacher who introduced him to me at a very young age. I know that if he were here today, he would be proud of the many things we have accomplished since his death, including the appointment of Thurgood Marshall, the election of President Obama, etc. But then, if he knew about how much violence and segregation 
is still going on in our world right now, he would know his dream is not complete. One example of MLK's dream being incomplete is the tragedy of Michael Brown, the high school graduate who was shot simply because he was black. Many people still believe in all of the Jim Crow laws, and there is so much violence against African Americans that a movement called Black Lives Matter is happening. So many people believe Dr. King's dream still lives, and if we can all come together, we will overcome. Hopefully, someday soon, we will be able to sing the last words of his speech. Free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last. Hi, my name's Imogene Ostrom, and I will be reading a poem called Freedom that I wrote in Spanish and English. Well, first I'll read it in Spanish, just so you know. Libertad. La libertad parece como un hermoso arco iris atravesando las, de las nubes después de una tormenta. Sabe como un helado derretizándose en su boca en un caluroso día de verano. Se siente como una mañana con neblina acariciando tu cuerpo. Suena como campanas de iglesia después que una feliz pareja se ha casado. Y huele como rosas floreciendo sobre el sendero al paricio. ¿Hemos llegado al paricio? No, aún. Pero ciertamente estamos sobre ese sendero buscando una forma de llegar allí. ¿Qué es lo que tú estás haciendo para llegar allí? Freedom. Freedom looks like a breathtaking rainbow bursting through the clouds after a thunderstorm. It tastes like ice cream melting in your mouth on a sweltering summer day. It feels like a morning mist caressing your body. It sounds like church bells after some happy couple has gotten married. And it smells like blooming roses on the pathway to paradise. Are we at that paradise? Not yet. But we are certainly on that pathway looking for a way to get there. What are you going to do to get there? Zoe, Rafe, Imogene, thank you, or Dojia, as my Cantonese great-grandmother would say. That's all I got, though. You guys put me to shame. (laughs) And now let's continue the tradition of closing this celebration with song. Join Danelle Damon and Greater Works, and we shall overcome. In all of the years that I've done this, we've always concluded with the Reverend Dr. King So we want to sing, I'm sorry, with with the Reverend Dr. Samuel McKinney, but we want to sing it very strongly for his honor. We shall overcome, say it. We shall overcome. We shall overcome. We shall overcome. Today. That's what he'll say. service, can you tell the person next to you and the person behind you, we will overcome. Come on and tell them. Look them in the eye and say, we will overcome. All together, deep in my heart. Oh,
That's it for this podcast of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 CM. This event took place on Friday, January 15, 2016, at Seattle's Mount Zion Baptist Church. Tune in again for more from Speakers Forum.